A story. A new long-term care plan to consider. About two years ago, my wife and I were on a cruise through the western Mediterranean aboard a princess ship. At dinner, we noticed an elderly lady sitting alone along the rail of the grand stairway in the main dining room. I also noticed that the staff, the ship's officers, the waiters, the busboys, all seemed very familiar with this lady. I asked our waiter who the lady was, expecting to be told she owned the line, but he said he only knew that she had been on board for the last four cruises back to back. As we left the dining room one evening, I caught her eye and stopped to say hello. We chatted and I said, I understand you've been on this ship for the last four cruises. She replied, yes, that's true. I stated, I don't understand. And she replied without a pause, it's cheaper than a nursing home. (laughs) So there will be no nursing home in my future. When I get old and feeble, I'm going to get on a princess cruise ship. The average cost for a nursing home is $200 per day. I have checked on reservations at Princess, and I can get a long-term discount and senior discount price of $135 per day. That leaves $65 a day for gratuities, I will have as many as 10 meals a day if I can waddle to the restaurant or I can have room service, breakfast in bed. Princess has as many as three swimming pools, a workout room, free washers and dryers, and shows every night. They have free toothpaste and razors and free soap and shampoo. They will even treat you like a customer, not a patient. An extra $5 worth of tips will have the entire staff scrambling to help you. I will get to meet new people every 7 to 14 days. (laughs) TV broken? Light bulb need changing? Need to have the mattress replaced? No problem. (laughs) They will fix everything and apologize for your inconvenience. Clean sheets and towels every day and you don't even have to ask for them. If you fall in the nursing home and break a hip, you are on Medicare. If you fall and break a hip on the princess ship, they will upgrade you to a suite for the rest of your life. (laughs) Now, hold on for the very best. Do you want to see South America, the Panama Canal, Tahiti, Australia, New Zealand, Asia, or name where you want to go? Princess will have a ship ready to go. So don't look for me in a nursing home. Just call shore to ship. P.S. And don't forget, when you die, they just jump you. They just dump you over the side at no charge. So this is the second practice that we're learning for dealing with aging, illness, and dying, and that is laughter to see humor, to enjoy laughing, to enjoy the lighter side of things. Now we'll get serious.
Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more and then we'll do another inquiry. So, one time, the Buddha was visiting an elderly, sick person. And the elderly, sick person asked the Buddha if he had any advice or counsel for him. And the Buddha said, yes, I do. He said, although your body is sick, Let not your mind be sick. Thus you should train yourself. This is the training in this practice of Vipassana, practice of mindfulness. Let not the mind be sick. In a way, that's what we are learning, how to have a healthy mind, a healthy relationship with our minds. So this afternoon, in addition to dancing and laughing, we are going to focus on practices which keep the mind healthy. The first, and probably the last, come to think of it, is learning to work with the breath. From the moment that we sit down, the first instruction in mindfulness that we ever get practically is to learn how to let go of our thinking and return to an awareness of breath, an awareness of breathing, this universal experience that is always present, is always with us. The breath breathes itself. Sometimes we can control the breath, but it's always here. It's always a good place to settle ourselves around. When we bring the mind to the breath and we learn that move of letting go and resting the mind in the breath, we are learning how to let go. We are learning how to calm ourselves We are learning how to stabilize the mind so it's not just jumping all around. And that is like like the foundation practice of all other spiritual practices. That is the foundation. That is what we need primarily, is this ability to let go, to calm, and to stabilize the mind so it doesn't get so lost and confused and scattered and distracted. Sogyal Rinpoche wrote, Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind. So beautiful. Rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helplessly by karma and neurotic thought like the pounding of the waves in the endless ocean of samsara. We are learning how to find this natural great peace of just being here with the breath, with this present experience. 
So that's the first practice. It will stand you in good stead in whatever situations your life takes you. I think you can see that. The second practice, very important, is that through practice we learn we learn we learn to be in harmony with change. Aging is change. Illness is change. Dying is the big change. We can practice for and with these events as we sit and begin to learn how to recognize the moment-to-moment unfolding of our own experience, how it keeps changing moment-to-moment, a thought, a sound, a sensation, a sight, a feeling, a memory, a plan. They just keep unfolding. Have you noticed that? And sometimes when we start meditation, we think that that's wrong and that we should learn how to control that, make it stop. To some degree, we slow it down, but we don't need to make it stop. We need to learn to be in harmony with it without getting lost in it, without getting into resisting this natural movement of life. So in our sitting practice, we learn to recognize the changing nature of reality itself and to allow these changes, which means we are learning in some way to trust in impermanence. We're learning to trust change, not fight it, not think it's a mistake or something that is, means that something terrible is going to happen. No, it's the nature of life to change constantly. We are learning to trust the unfolding of life moment to moment. We become sensitive to the process of life and how it is we experience it as a flow of change. We learn that we can ride the waves of change with a courageous presence. We don't need to run away from change. We can allow it. We can be present for it. All of our difficulties are temporary, as are all of our joys, all of our sorrows, all of our successes, all of our failures. Nothing stands still or lasts forever. When we, resist tri- when we resist change and try to make things last, this is what the Buddha called suffering. Learning to be in harmony with change means learning to let go, to trust, to ride the waves. So a major practice of aging, illness, and dying is the practice of learning to let go. 
We might even think of letting go as a daily practice. So that at the end of the day, we're not thinking so much about what we achieved or got or held on to, but what we were able to let go of, whether it's the stuff in the attic or a grudge you're holding against somebody or against yourself or letting go of a demand that you feel inside you about how things should be. Learn, learn in whatever way you can to let go. It's a process, and you learn a lot in the process of letting go. You'll find your resistance and your confusion and your anxiety and all these other things. But it's, a, it's part of what this life is encouraging us to do. Okay. So that's the second big practice. The third is to turn towards these heavenly messengers, not away. You know, like this morning, we we recognized our reaction is, you know, there's a lot of resistance there in our fear, in our shock, in our angst, our grief. But part of our practice is to learn not to turn away, not to run away, not to avoid. Do any of us spend time with those who are ill or truly old? Just as in our sitting practice we're encouraged to turn towards things that are agitating, a thought, a memory, a pain in the body, we're urged to turn towards so that we can make friends with, we can come into a more harmonious relationship with something that's unwanted. So I think it's a wonderful practice to encourage ourselves to be in the presence of those who are ill or those who are dying or those who are perhaps needing our help, those who are aging. You know, old pe- if you notice old people, all you know, they're on the street, they're in the markets, and just give them some attention. Just notice their presence there. They may need even need your help. Maybe they don't need your help, but maybe they do need your help. But they'll certainly enjoy your acknowledgement because there's this thing that happens. So it's sort of like the same with homeless people. We begin to ignore old people. We begin to like, you know. I remember once being in Fairfax and I was outside of the good earth and um, there was this old man coming up the sidewalk. I mean, literally at a snail's pace. He had a walker and he was moving ahead, steadily moving ahead, very slow. I just got mesmerized to, th- to think, there he is, what courage that takes. There he is, out on the sidewalk, by himself, with a walker, moving up the sidewalk. He clearly was going somewhere, I don't know where. He was going somewhere. 
And I just wanted to, I just wanted to take that in. I just wanted to see what that world he was inhabiting was was about, just by being attentive to his being there. I don't know anything about his story, but it was a, it was an, it it informed me about something about what it requires from a person to do that. Fourth, so uh, the fourth practice is about um, working with pain. Pain in the body, pain in the mind. John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction all began with working with people with chronic pain whom the doctors had given up on. That's how this whole mindfulness movement began, was with John Kabat-Zinn in the basement of this hospital, people thinking he was a little weird that he would want to work with people with chronic pain. But he did. He took them on. And he was able to help them with this practice of mindfulness, not to be victims anymore of their pain, but to have a a more harmonious relationship with this unwanted experience called pain. So there's this big teaching that pain brings to us that those of you who have practiced, especially on retreat, know and maybe others know or have heard about. It's the teaching of the two arrows. And it's the teaching that, yes, the body will have pain. There is pain in the body. The suffering is different. The suffering is often the second arrow. It's like you've been shot with an arrow. You have pain in the body. The second arrow is all of our reaction to that pain, our hating the pain, our fear of the pain, our wanting it to go away, our you know, freak out around the pain. That is the suffering called the second arrow. So we can't always make the pain go away, but we have quite a bit to say about this suffering. Suffering, we say sometimes, is optional. And the training in mindfulness shows us the difference and how we can begin to think of them differently, pain and suffering, and how we can work with our own reactive tendencies of mind. It's not such an obvious teaching until you're in there with it. And then when you're in there with it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. The fifth practice is that of working with fear. Fear is an inevitable part of the spiritual journey and may be especially challenging when our usual defenses stop working, as they do when we are ill, when we are in a state of some kind when we feel our world is disappearing, our defenses are down, 
And often what arises out of that more vulnerable state is fear. So it is important to practice with fear now as preparation for later on when we are facing our mortality. There's a lot to say about fear. We, we you know, practically could offer a whole retreat on fear. But for now, let me offer you two main ways of beginning to work with fear. In the practice of mindfulness, one of the recommended antidotes to fear is the attitude and practice of loving-kindness, the attitude and practice of metta, M-E-T-T-A, So it is recommended that we make metta a daily practice, sending metta to ourselves, sending metta to others. A more specific way to do it that is directly uh, aimed at fear is to do a practice that the Dalai Lama does. I heard him describe this, and I never forgot it, because it's, I think it's quite brilliant. In his usual jolly manner, the Dalai Lama said, when he travels with people, he always travels with a lot of people. You know, there's people around him, monks and security people, and I don't know, friends, whatever. He has a lot of people with him. And so he says when he does travel, he always sends metta, out in front of him, he sends metta to the sides of his himself, to the back of himself. And then, he says, and then, I am happy because everyone around me is happy. So we can apply this to fear and let, let's do this right now as a practice together. So you can put down your paper and pen for a moment and let me guide you. So in this practice, we're going to fill the space around us with our good wishes, our loving, kind wishes for all the beings that surround us. So imagining yourself sending from your heart good wishes of loving kindness out in front of you with these words, to all those beings in front of me, may you be safe and free from harm. And now imagining all the beings in back of you To all those beings in back of me, may you be safe and free from harm.
And now to all the beings on your right side, to this, out into the space on your right side, to all those beings to my right, may you be safe and free from harm. And all those beings to the left, visualizing the space on your left side. May all the beings on my left side be safe and free from harm. And now imagine all the beings in the space above you May all the beings in the space above me, may you be safe and free from harm. And and now sending wishes to all the beings in the space underneath you. May all the beings below me be safe and free from harm. And may I, too, be safe and free from harm. May all beings everywhere, in all directions, in front of me, behind me, to my right, to my left, above me and below me, May all beings, everywhere, in every direction, including myself, be safe and free from harm. So you can make up your own phrases, you can send out whatever wishes you wish. You do this practice daily and notice what shifts for you. Notice what changes in your level of fear. I think you will find it comforting. You can also send phrases of compassion. So a related practice would be that um, if you are ill or you are in pain, you send out wishes for others who are ill or in pain, and wishing, wish them to be free of suffering.
Just as I wish to be suffering, may all the beings in front of me who are ill be free of suffering. Something like that. You can fill the space with your compassionate wishes for all beings to be well. Do you get the do you get do you get what I'm saying? Please nod your heads if you're with me. <laughs> you're looking a little still. This is also a practice of knowing you're not alone. Often in our suffering, we feel deeply alone, don't we? Like we're the only one. We're not the only one. You're never the only one. So join with others. Join with others. Turn your difficulty into compassionate wishes for others, as well as for yourself. Okay, so that is a a primary way, an antidote way of working with fear. To create a space of love and caring and compassion in yourself, around yourself. The second main way of working with fear is through the practice of mindfulness. As I said before, mindfulness encourages us to turn towards things that are scary or difficult, unwanted. So we learn to do that slowly in the practice of mindfulness. We slowly learn how to accommodate difficult experiences. And what is interesting about this, now the brain researchers are looking at this and finding that when we do this, when we turn towards things in our direct experience, it changes the neural activity in the brain in a way that is very positive. We strengthen the neural activity in the part of the brain that is willing to engage and approach life with courage. It diminishes the neural activity in the part of the brain that wants to avoid unpleasant experiences. In other words, it's like we learn some kind of new courage when we do this, and it shows up in the brain. I think that's amazing. We could say we become less afraid of fear itself. We get more brave to challenge our fears and our limitations. Way back in the late 70s, I went to see this teacher, Krishnamurti, that was around then. He was quite a force of brilliance and freedom. and He was, an, he was quite a force. Lovely to hear. He was a great orator. He spoke beautifully. So the first time I went to see him was in the late 70s, and he kept saying this thing over and over again. Thought breeds fear. Thought breeds fear. And he said it like, I don't know, 50 million times this one day I went to see him. I had no idea what he was talking about. 
I was just completely in the dark because I was new. I had hardly practiced. I hadn't done, you know, it was just like thought breathe fear. What the, what the soul, what, you know, I just couldn't make heads or tails of it. And then I did some practice, and some years later I went back to see him again, another venue, another time, another place. And this time, what he said, I just felt like, oh my God, he's talking directly to my experience. I just understood, I felt like I understood so much more of what he was teaching than I had the first time. And this is how it works, that the concepts about fear or about pain or about many other things, as we practice with these things, they become understandable. They become known to us. They become familiar understandings in our own experience. So with fear, I knew I I had a different relationship to fear than I had when I first saw him. So if what I'm saying, you know, is kind of doesn't make total sense, don't worry about it. With practice it will make great sense. So what I have been saying so far is about working with the breath, to learning to let go, to stabilize the mind, to calm the mind, uh, learning to be in harmony with change learning to turn towards difficult experiences, learning to cultivate that quality of courageous presence in ourselves so that we can show up even when it's challenging, cultivating the inner resources of loving kindness and compassion for ourselves, for others, seeing that these are all practices that directly address some of our Issues around the heavenly messengers. And finally, the final practice is the ultimate practice in a way. To understand that ultimately the mind and the body have different journeys. What is it that ages? The body. Does your mind age? Your awareness mind, maybe the cognitive mind seems like, yes, definitely, memory is not what it used to be. Yes, that's the brain function part of the mind. But the awareness mind, does that age? Does your awareness of a sound of a bird diminish? No. What gets ill? the body, what dies, what dies, the body, the awareness mind does not die, does not age, does not get ill. This is a little story I got from Sokni Rinpoche, who's a Lama who we're all very fond of. And he tells this little story that is an analogy to what it is like to have a body. He said, imagine that you wake up one morning in a beautiful house you have never seen before. 
there's nobody in the house. You wander around, you get up, look around, you see this beautiful place, there's nobody here. And you wonder, whose house is this? And you wait for somebody to appear, but nobody comes to claim it. And so slowly over time, you assume ownership of this house. Until finally, it's become your house. Oh, it's my house. It's mine. Look, I decorated it. I, I made it. I remodeled it. I did this. I did that. It's my house. Mine. And it becomes more and more yours until you forget how it came to you. It has simply become my house. So when we awaken, we realize the true ownership of this house is not me. We realize that the house was never ours. We assumed ownership, but it was never ours. This body is like that. It's a gift of life, and we assume ownership. It seems so familiar by now, right? You've lived in it for so long. It's like, my body, yeah, of course it's my body. Did you make this body? Do you control this body? No. It's a gift of life itself. In the Tibetan language, the word for body is lu, L-U, And what it means is, lu means something you leave behind, like baggage. So, Lama said, each time we say lu, it reminds us that we are only travelers, taking temporary refuge in this life and this body. That's in the Tibetan language. We don't have a word like that. So with awakening, what happens? We no longer believe, we we see through the illusion that we are this body. We, We lose the identification with the body as mine, as me. So we have ways of beginning to train ourselves to think like this, It's not natural to us to think like this, is it? You may not even remember what I said here this afternoon because it may seem so foreign. What? The body is like baggage? I don't get it, you know. So there's on the back table, there's a a sheet of the five recollections, five reflections that traditionally are given to practitioners to look at regularly, to even recite every day. I am of the nature to age. The body is the body ages. I am the body has the nature to age. It's out there on the table. I don't have a copy right here with me. But if you want to take one of those home, it's a way of familiarizing yourself with this idea that we don't own the body. It's the body that ages. It's the body that gets ill. It's the body that dies. Oh, thank you. 
I am of the nature to age. Aging is unavoidable. I am of the nature to have ill health. Ill health is unavoidable. I am of the nature to die. Death is unavoidable. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. Separating from them is inevitable. My thoughts and words and deeds are my only true belongings. The results of my thoughts and words and deeds are inescapable. This is the view of mind and body that we practice with in the Buddhist tradition. So please take one. Thank you. Take one home with you. So that is one way to practice. I remember one Tibetan Lama I used to sit with who put it this way at the end of a long teaching. So he said, now, do you have confidence in your total indestructibility? And we're all like, no, not really. And he said, if you do not, then keep practicing. (laughs) The deathless, nirvana, the absolute, the unborn, the undying essence. These are not easily known by us, but with practice we have this opportunity to say, yes, I understand. I am indestructible. The essence is indestructible. So this is why we practice. That is why awakening is so vital and why the messengers are what goad us on. They are inescapable reminders that there is only one way out through realizing the wisdom that transcends the mortality and the frailty of the body. The body is unreliable as a refuge. There is no other solution but to know the deathless, the indestructible essence that we are. A Thai forest master, Ajahn Lee, said, Aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They are noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. So let your encounter with the heavenly messengers in whatever way they have appeared in your life be a motivation for your practice. Let there be an urgency in your sense of the importance of practice, of realization. Remembering Samvega and Pasada Ask yourself, what matters now? Make that your priority in life. What matters? Knowing I'm going to possibly be ill, possibly be very, very old, possibly die. Well, not possibly. (laughs) Knowing that I will die, what matters now? I saw the movie Selma. How many of you saw that movie? Yeah. Very moving. I thought it really was moving, but 
I was struck by how often Martin Luther King spoke about death to his followers. It was like his, it was a presence that was always with him. And he said this beautiful thing. He said, you cannot choose when you will die or how you will die. But you can choose what you give your life to. That's why this reflection is so important. You can choose what you give your life to. And then when death comes, as it will, unpredictably, you will be, you won't feel cheated. You will feel okay. I gave my life to what matters the most. The Dalai Lama wrote, Awareness of death is the very bedrock of the path. Until you have developed this awareness, all other practices are useless. So, those are the practices that can help us as we encounter the heavenly messengers. So we're going to now break up into small groups and do some inquiry work on these on this idea of these practices. And what I would like to suggest is that you get into groups of four people this time. Um, I think you probably, we should break up into groups first and then I'll describe the process of how we're going to do the inquiry. It's a little different than what we did this morning. But um, the question will be to name something you want to take into your practice from being here today. What is it that spoke to you as like a possible focus for your practice of all the things I mentioned? What would you like to take into your practice? What would you like to explore in your practice from what I have mentioned or anything else that comes to you? Okay, but we're going to do this in a particular form that I want to describe once you get into your groups of four. So find three other people to create a group with. Spread out in the room. We have plenty of room. And let me say this for the people at home. I'll speak to the people at home. If you want to do this, if you're in a group that can do this practice, that would be great. If not, um, I thought that maybe you could do a practice like go, go somewhere in your town. You want to go downtown and just look, just seek out some heavenly messengers. Go and just spend some time looking if there's old people, or you might go visit somebody who's ill, or you might uh, 
visit somebody who's dying. So just to go go find some heavenly messengers to hang out with is what I <laughs> And we'll come back, of course, in about a half an hour. So those at, those online uh, will be back here to complete our time together in a half an hour. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.